This is the Education Gadfly Show. And no, no, bad Shirley. No, what, what is it? What is it, David? That. So you can't. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. Now, please welcome our special guest for this week, Fordham's own Adam Tyner. Adam, welcome to the show. How's it going, Mike? Uh, it's going pretty well. Great to have you here. Also joining us, as always, my co-host, David Griffith. Hey, Mike. Hey, hey, hey. So Adam is Fordham's Associate Director of Research. You all know that. He sometimes subs in on the Research Minute for Amber. But today, he is our guest because he was the project manager, the number cruncher on a new study and interactive website that we've got out. We're going to talk about it on Ed Reform Update. Okay, Adam. So this, what do we call it? Report, analysis, website. Uh, this Ma- looks- Masterpiece, Mike. Masterpiece. <laughs> that's right. It is called <laughs> America's Best and Worst Metro Areas for School Quality. I'm so excited about this. I think this might've been one of my zany ideas. One of the few that you guys just didn't manage to talk me out of when I must've had it a while back. And so here it is, it's real in the flesh. We were able to use the fantastic Stanford Education Data Archive data, plus some NCS data to rank the nation's 100 largest metro areas based on school quality. Super excited. This is all pre-pandemic, but let's talk more about it from the expert, Adam himself. So Adam, first of all, let's just talk about what, you know, from your perspective, why look at metro areas, which is, I think, something that hasn't been done before, hasn't been done much? Yeah, I mean, I think you answered the question, Mike. I mean, no one had really looked at metro areas from this perspective. There are, you know, education rankings, and we see stuff for like, there was that New York Times thing last week or whatever that came out or a couple of weeks ago that was like, you know, what city should you live in? And, you know, they use different kind of data and they used school, some school quality data, and I'm not exactly sure all of what they used, but it seemed like most of it and what's traditional to use in those kinds of ratings and rankings is to use kind of like average academic achievement. And of course, as most listeners probably know, that's not a great way to evaluate school quality. And so we wanted to look at metro areas from the perspective of how their schools were actually performing, not just the outputs and the outcomes, but trying to get a handle on whether students are actually learning more in those places. And so we use that Stanford Education Data Archive data that enables you to kind of estimate what we call cohort academic growth. And it's kind of an approximation of how much students are learning in those places. And so we applied that. We have a formula for our rankings that is heavily weighted towards those kinds of student growth measures, although it includes some other stuff. And there's even some data that we don't include in the rankings that's available on the website in case people kind of want to manipulate that themselves and see how metros would stack up under a different set of assumptions Mm -hmm. or, or with different kind of focus on different metrics. But we really wanted to kind of focus people on the performance of the schools. And we thought that this data was the best way to do it. Yeah. All right. Well, before we get into all the weeds, let's also say that, look, there's a lot of questions in education policy that we would like to answer that really you've got to look at the metro area about, right? So for example, uh, when we're curious about the impact of various forms of school choice, if you only look within a given school district, then you don't capture what's happening when kids cross district boundaries, you know, for a charter school on the other side, or just for traditional public school. Of course, a lot of the big questions around integration, desegregation, those really 
are things that, you know, you got to see how it plays out in the metro area writ large. And, you know, most Americans live in metro areas, right? I mean, that, that's where most people are at. I will say, look, that this is all pre-pandemic data. But, you know, one thing that made me so curious about these rankings is back in the before days, back in the 2010s, there was a lot of talk about how a handful of metro areas, these so-called superstar cities, what Richard Florida would call them, were just continuing to aggregate more and more money and power, venture capital, uh, you know, the, the young workers, everybody go into Silicon Valley, to New York City, to the DC area, maybe Boston's in there too, Austin, you know, more recently, winner take all, you know, and what was happening to these other metros. And they would make these pitches to these businesses like Amazon when they had their HQT that, hey, we've got this highly educated workforce and we've got these great schools in these metro areas, right? Well, yeah, I mean, a lot of those schools do well in average SAT scores and stuff, but that's because the kids are mostly affluent and a lot of them, you know, have, have two parents with college degrees and all the rest. So really wanted to know if you measured it more fairly, would some of these uh, other metro areas look better? And, and then, of course, in the pandemic, we've had this, you know, scenario where all of a sudden people are realizing, many of them, that they can work from anywhere and they are leaving the Silicon Valleys and they're leaving the New York cities. Uh, looking for other places. So, hey, we'd like to put some other metro areas on the map. Or maybe they shouldn't leave, Mike. Maybe they shouldn't leave. <laughs> right? well, you can work from anywhere, but yep. you can't send your kid to school from anywhere, yes. uh, as we've learned. So, Yes, that is it. No, that's a great point. You're right. So maybe it is worth saying. So what do we find out, Adam? We look mostly at student growth, also growth for disadvantaged kids, progress over time. Uh, we control everything for demographics. So tell Correct. us, who are some of the, what are some of the places that come out well? So all of the metros in the country, the 100 largest, are available on our website at metro.fordhaminstitute.org. But I can give you the top five here of the largest metros were number five was Indianapolis, number four, Atlanta, number three was kind of a surprise to me, McAllen, Texas came in at number three, number two, Memphis, Tennessee, and the number one metro of the large ones was Miami, Florida. Mm -hmm. That's right. And again, keep in mind, these are metro areas. So Miami, it's actually what a lot of us think of as South Florida, right? It's Miami-Dade and Broward and Palm Beach, a huge area. And then tell us the five worst ones. The five worst among the 50 largest metros were mm -hmm. Richmond, Virginia, Salt Lake City, Baltimore, Raleigh, North Carolina, Las Vegas, and number 50 was Honolulu. Ooh, oh, poor Hawaii. I know. All right. Well, so there's so much to unpack in here. And, you know, as Adam has reminded me about 17 million times in the last couple of months, we can't really say anything about why these places are doing poorly or doing well, right? What do researchers say when you do that controlling on the... And no, no, bad patrolling. No, what, what is it? You what is it, David? <laughs> yeah, right, 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 right. But so you can't, right? So we don't know why some of these places are better than others. But it, it, we hope that by putting this information out there, it does ask people to go in and, and try to dig in and maybe ask some of those questions. So for example, David might want to dig in about the impact of the charter school enrollment share at the metro level area on these sorts of things. For example, that might be something you look at. I mean, you know, there's forever been a question about size of school districts, right? Back in the day, before we had a lot of these kind of cohort data, 
you know, people would do studies and find no relationship between school district size and outcomes. Is that still the case? I mean, it's certainly several of the places that do quite well have these big countywide systems. You know, on the other hand, there are some like Raleigh, you know, and Vegas that have countywide systems that do terribly. So there you go. You know, charter schools. I mean, you look at, at Miami and Memphis and Indianapolis and you know, these are all places uh, that have lots of charter schools. That, that's interesting to me. But, you know, I know we would need much better studies to be able to figure out if that's what's really going on. D- David, get, get in here before I get in any trouble. Well, no, you're not in any trouble uh, or any more trouble than you usually are. I'll just ask a resources question, Adam. I, I mean, was there anything that surprised you in the data as you were playing around with it for months? Sometimes you see patterns and it's, it's contrary to your priors. So, so what surprised you or what did you see? Well, one thing that we found was that we came up with this kind of formula for, you know, how much should we attribute to student growth? And we also include a metric for metro improvement. How much has the metro improved over the last 10 years or so? We have high school graduation rate in there. Like I said, it's heavily weighted towards student growth measures. But when we have that formula and we control for demographics and everything, the rankings are completely uncorrelated with the kind of thing that we would normally maybe look at really naively, just like average academic achievement, not controlling for any demographics. So it's not to say that it's negatively correlated. There are places in all four quadrants, if you want to think of it that way, a place like Raleigh, for example, has really high average academic achievement. If you were to rank the uh, 50 metros just by that the 50 largest raleigh come in number four but when you look Mm -hmm. at our rating raleigh comes in at number 48 on the other hand there's places where the average academic achievement is very low like las vegas and we also give them a very low score Um, Mm -hmm. and, and you know las vegas is number 46 in average academic achievement and number 49 according to Mm -hmm. our ratings Then there's places like Memphis that has very low academic achievement. It's 48th in the country in academic achievement, but it's number two in our ratings. And then, of course, there's places like San Jose that are top 10, regardless of whether you're looking at academic achievement or the rank. So it's really uncorrelated with academic achievement. And that makes me feel like we're getting at something that's very different than academic mm-hmm. achievement. And so it's not like we're, we're looking at the opposite of that or something. We're just looking at a very different mm-hmm. conception of school quality. Yeah. And it, it reminds me to go back to the superstar city question, right? So, you know, some people would consider the research triangle one of those, but, you know, here we have Raleigh doesn't actually look very good on student growth. Wake County in particular, pretty mediocre there. San Francisco metro area does not look very good on growth. However, San Jose actually does. So, you know, depending on where in the Silicon Valley you are, if, you know, that looks pretty good. Boston does reasonably well. Again, Mm -hmm. high academic achievement, very affluent, also kids making progress there. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so that looks pretty good. DC, high average academic achievement, you know, as we know, some of the most affluent counties in the country. And yet, pretty mediocre in the middle of the pack. And you know why? Mm-hmm. It's not the District of Columbia. DCPS and the DC charter schools look like they're doing great. It's Northern Virginia. It's Fairfax County and Loudoun County dragging down the DC metro area. Mike, you do realize we have a national audience, right? <laughs> <laughs> we do. But we do have some data indicating that it's overrepresented uh, you know, within DC and New York. <laughs> No, I know. But, and, and, and let's stress then, you're right. Memphis, Memphis, Memphis. I just love the Memphis story. I mean, this is a place that has had a huge amount of reform activity over the last uh, 10 or 15 years. 
some local funders, the Hides and, and others who have just been pouring resources in to try to improve the schools. You had this interesting reform where the, the city and the, the surrounding county merged, you know, which is very unusual. And, and look, so, something really good seems to be happening in Memphis. Adam, is there any correlation or lack thereof between the progress that cities are making overall and the progress they're making with sort of traditionally disadvantaged groups, right? In other words, you know, just being a, a really, well, I don't want to say reform-minded, but successful city system, does it necessarily bring up all the students, do you think? Or is there, a, you know, is there a, sort of a total lack of correlation between how I mean, I, what, what, what do you What do you think, Adam? I mean, I, when I've been playing around with the map and everything, it, it looks to me like those two, the growth measures usually point in the same direction. I, I can't remember any that pointed in opposite directions, you know, for sort of disadvantaged kids versus others. But what do you think? I think that's generally true. Uh, sorry, David, you were asking about the correlation between like student growth and... Student growth and growth for yeah, the disadvantaged. Yeah, just disadvantaged versus mm-hmm. overall. Yeah. I mean, keep in mind that, you know, disadvantaged includes the, you know, economically disadvantaged kids. And that's half the kids, right? So, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not surprising if those go in the same direction, plus African-American and Hispanic students. Yeah, I don't think you're getting like a a, a totally different concept there, but it does kind of make the uh, achievement of kind of closing gaps even more a part of of our ranking. And we wanted to make sure that places that were really um, making strides with students who are traditionally disadvantaged got a little extra boost. So that's why we included it in the, and gave it that extra weight in the formula. Well, folks, I hope you dig in and have fun. You can really wonk out on this stuff, not just the rankings at the metro area, again, for the 50 biggest and these mid-sized ones that we didn't talk about, but you can also dig in and you can say, well, which school districts within a metro area are doing particularly well or poorly? And it's really fun, especially when you see some of these hoity-toity school districts, these uh, you know private public school districts, so to speak, looking like they do not do very well. Indeed, you can enjoy that. <laughs> Enjoyment at their expense. Yeah. All right, Adam, great job on this project. Again, it's America's best and worst metro areas for school quality. Check it out. And I hope you'll come back on the show sometime soon. Thanks, Mike. All right. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Mike. So, Amber, did you know that this time of year in early December is when they used to slaughter the hogs back in the day? Huh. I did not. Mike, you teach me something new every week. (laughs) I I read about this in the Wall Street Journal the other day. Now, it's really interesting because all fall, the pigs would eat, just gorge themselves on acorns and things like Uh that, especially the acorns. So they'd Uh get nice and fat. And then if you waited until December and it was cold, you didn't have to worry about refrigeration, which was an issue way back in the day when they didn't have refrigeration. Right. And then, of course, there's, you know, people would have hams for Christmas. So this is all a long way for me to say, are you going to prepare a nice Christmas ham this year, do you think? <laughs> I do prefer ham to turkey, like a lot of people. So I will probably be purchasing a ham. My husband hated the spiral ham. He thought it was drier than just the shank that you cut yourself. We buy the shank and cut it ourselves around here. No spirals for us. Interesting. Yeah. It's harder to mess up ham, I think. But the problem is nobody knows how to cook a turkey. But if you do it right, you can have delicious turkey. And if you buy it from Whole Foods like I did this year, it's even better. 
Oh. Like, I don't think it will surprise our listeners to learn that you're an expert in ham. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I, do, I, I do have two boys that are entering the teenage years. We, uh, yeah, we have not yet transitioned to a carbon-free diet at our house. Uh, we talk about it. We talk about it. All oh, right, man. Amber, what, what you got for us this week? All right. We have some new research. It's actually a, a policy brief out of Calder. Our friends Dan Goldhaber and Atai Mizrov, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, part of the Calder Policymakers Council, attempts to empirically address various educational questions that are particularly important to policymakers So I like the aim of this council. So in this case, they're looking at various strategies to diversify the teacher workforce, given its various benefits. I think our listeners are probably familiar with this literature and the studies by Seth Gershenson and Constance Lindsay and Tom D and others uh, that look at the importance of teacher diversity. As context, students of color enrolled in public schools represent over 50% of the student body whereas only 20% of the U.S. teacher workforce are teachers of color. Again, just to get a little bit more context, research suggests that the underrepresentation in the teacher workforce occurs across multiple career steps from recruitment to retention, and different entities are at least partly responsible for some of these disparities. So this paper is a simulation presenting evidence on how the diversity of the workforce changes as prospective teachers advance through the pipeline and its impact on the eventual teacher workforce. It uses available data, some of which is based on assumptions, compiled from an interactive Calder teacher diversity tool that estimates the rate at which teachers of color, again, progress at each juncture of the teacher career continuum, starting with the demographic composition of 12th graders and exploring the probability of each demographic group persisting towards becoming and remaining teachers at various nodes in the pipeline. Real quickly, these nodes are graduating high school, attending a two or four year college, taking and passing a basic skills licensure test that's often required for entry into teacher preparation programs, attending and completing college and that preparation program, taking and passing required state licensure and subject matter tests, applying to teach in a public school, getting offered a position, taking the offer, and hence entering the classroom as a teacher, and then finally remaining in the teaching workforce after three years. So we're going to look at these various nodes uh, in this pathway. We know that diversity in the pipeline diminishes as individuals progress through it, but some nodes are more likely to be impacted by policies than others. So they try to concentrate on those areas. All right, now. Amber, just to say then, this is really about sort of the idea that the pipeline is leaky. Yes. And we're losing uh, some of these people at various points. So if we could have a less leaky pipeline for diverse educators, that would be a good thing. There you go. They should have called it leaky pipeline. Dan, mental note uh, for him. I know he's a listener. All right. The five simulations that they explore for these different nodes. The first assumes that the high school diploma and four-year college going rates are equivalent across all race and ethnicity groups. The second... Uh, yep, I know. The second assumes equal passage rates on licensure tests, both basic skills and subject matter, since licensure tests have been the subject of much debate. The third focuses on teacher education program enrollment and completion, where they simulate all demographic groups having an equal probability of enrolling in teacher education and graduating from college. Then the next one, evidence suggests that the successes in the recruitment of teachers of color are completely overturned by failures to retain them. 
So the fourth simulation targets differential attrition and simulates the admittedly unrealistic scenario where the retention rate for teachers of color in the workforce is 100% for their first three years in the teaching profession, while the retention rate for white teachers remains at 87%. And the fifth and final simulation assumes that all of the changes described for scenarios one through four actually occur. The key findings, the four individual simulations increased workforce diversity anywhere from two to 16 percentage points with equal passing rates on licensure tests showing the highest increase equating to 16 percentage points or 83% since both black and Hispanic college students have traditionally experienced lower graduation rates. Simulating retention rates for teachers of color in the workforce at 100% for their first three years in the teaching profession only increased diversity by about four percentage points or 19% since the proportion of teachers of color entering the workforce is low to begin with. Only when they conduct simulations one through four combined does it result in an increase of 35 percentage points or 182% which finally results in the early career teacher workforce reflecting the demographics of K-12 public schools. Their main point, I think they're trying to illustrate, is that a single level diversification strategy, like a lot of these local grow-your-own programs we hear about, is not likely to move the needle all that much. Well, that's depressing. Yeah. But that doesn't mean it's not Not, important. We should Um, do it, right? Sure. No. Well, and look, I mean, so the one takeaway is, yeah, it's hard because of the racial achievement gap, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that uh, that as long as we continue to have this huge racial achievement gap as students leave high school, go into college, leave college, you know, you're, you're going to see this show up in these pipelines unless we get what? Get rid of these tests. I mean, we, we've known this for a long time, right? Is that there is a trade-off here between what some of the things we could do to boost teacher diversity and some of the things that we've done because we think it's important in terms of teacher preparation and, and quality and effectiveness. And I know a lot of people are questioning that, right? right so, so should we just get rid of the tests? I mean, is that what this means, David? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry. No, that's, that's my opinion. I see the value of diversity and I am open to various strategies. My instinct is always to throw money at it, but in this case, it's hard to even know how to do that because we're sort of prevented from throwing money at it directly. I don't know if it exactly what law would violate, right? But like, I think it is worth something to the public to pay some extra amount of money to keep particularly male teachers of color in the classroom in high poverty classrooms that I would love to make that happen. And I'm open to suggestions, right? But I do, I'm kind of a hardliner on this. I feel like we can't lower the bar for content, or we're sort of losing sight of what purpose of school is, right? Mm-hmm. And there's obviously a, a chicken and egg problem here, but I would be inclined you know, to try to see first how we can keep the high quality folks who do enter the classroom there for longer rather than and lowering the bar. That's just yeah. my personal opinion. Well, look, no, and it's right. And so it may not be a huge impact, but it's an impact. And, and so you plug that leaky pipeline in terms of retention. You know, I'd love to know, like in Washington, D.C., where they seem to be doing everything right on the teacher quality front, you know, they do, I think, better job retaining high quality teachers, including, I think, even especially teachers of color. Yeah. And Mike, let me just say, this is a useful exercise, right? And, you know, like Stan Goldhaber. So, okay, this is not a criticism, but in terms of the way we discuss this sort of thing, I am always sort of 
frustrated by utopian discussions, right? Where the premise is, well, like, that's not going to work because it won't get us 100% of the way there, where mm-hmm. there is defined as some just utterly utopian end goal, right? Like 100% proficiency or whatever, right? Look, 20% is a huge, mm-hmm. is a huge effect in my book. If we boost the number of black teachers or Hispanic teachers by 20%, that's a huge deal, even if it doesn't solve the whole problem. Yep. So yep. I just want to sort of push back against that potential framing, right? And say, succeeding in any one of these levels strikes me as something that's worth doing. And the focus should be on sort of whether we can do that without incurring any side effects that we don't mm-hmm. like. I mean, it was interesting, Amber. They, so they look at, you know, let's imagine that we increase these passage rates uh, to be equivalent, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but they didn't look at, you know, I mean, is that the same as looking at, well, let's imagine we lower the difficulty of the test? I mean, is that the same thing? Um, I, I guess I'm just still struggling. And I, of course, it's an incredibly difficult subject. But I always get confused when I think about Constance's work or Seth's work or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, others on the teacher diversity front, you know, are they holding constant these other measures of teacher inputs and quality and effectiveness or not? So are you saying that, you know, if you have two teachers, different race, but they scored the same on the Praxis or on the SAT, you know, then you find these positive results when you have student teacher race match or... Is it even regardless, even if it may be that the black teachers scored somewhat lower on the praxis, they still have these positive impacts on kids of color? That seems I, to be essential, I actually right? don't know the answer to that question, um, but I'm guessing they can, I mean, obviously they're going to control for as many things that they can control for. Yeah. So no, I, I don't know the answer to that question, yeah. Mike, but I'm, I, I know Seth listens to us, so hopefully he'll <laughs> yes. weigh in. Let us know. Yeah, look, because again, if it's a trade-off, you know, and if we have to say, well, look, if we lower the start, so we maybe don't get rid of the test, but we lower the cut score a little bit mm-hmm. and that opens the door somewhat and that, you know, has other positive effects and we can try to figure this out again, through a simulation to say, you know, where's the what, Goldilocks right, spot? Right. Right. Sweet spot. Have, You're always looking for that right. sweet spot, Mike. Well, what if it's hey, just I, a series of difficult trade-offs and there is no sweet spot? I'm a John Roberts conservative here, okay? I'm always trying <laughs> to find that middle ground. So listeners, let us know about this. Look, this is an important issue. But again, the bottom line, Amber, is that, you know- You've got to go you, at it multiple ways, you know. But yes, to David's point, you do one strategy and, and you make an improvement. That's great. Yeah. Let's not let the the perfect be the enemy of the good. That's fine. And and if you're a district or you're a charter network, there's certainly it's under your control to do a better job retaining teachers, including teachers of color. Yeah. All right. All (laughs) right. Fair enough. I'm afraid that that is all the time we've got for this week. And so until next week, I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.